The sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians is where I want to be reading from the 10th verse through 18. Late in the afternoon on Christmas Day, I got a phone call, and it was a call from a young father here in Durant. He wouldn't identify himself. And he said that he had, um, he had some fears about what he believed to be um, some demonic um, or satanic worship in his own family and uh, some implications of that that frightened him. And he wanted to know what I knew about, uh, you know, Satan worship and the demonic world and that kind of thing. Didn't take me long to tell him all I knew about it. And, and as we talked, I, he, he asked me to refer him to some books or material on the cults and the occult world. And I remember how we ended our conversation. I do remember that. He said, you know, I don't know a thing about that stuff. I'd like to know something about it. I think he's felt that his own child was being threatened by some occult practices. I remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He said, Lest Satan should gain an advantage over us, we are not ignorant of his devices. And in light of all that you're hearing now and seeing on television about the occult and the demonic world and satanic activity, I thought I would bring just one sermon on, on this subject a kind of a, um, just an overview of what this is about as we look at the Scripture. Now I need to tell you a couple of things up front. Number one is that sometimes, if you know me, if you've been here before, on Sunday morning I like to preach without notes, but occasionally I manuscript what I want to say so that I can go back and not be misunderstood. I, I'm going to refer to my notes greatly this morning, although I will not be chained to them. Secondly, I'm going to be reading several passages of Scripture, and I, you won't have time to turn to those verses, so I, I hope you'll get a pencil and somewhere you'll jot down the references so you can look them up later. As a matter of fact, it would not hurt at all, especially you young people, if you kind of get some of the ideas of this sermon down uh, on paper. Now I think there are two extremes that we confront when we deal with a subject such as this. One extreme is that we, we, want it, we, we say, well, you know, he said, let's just, we don't want to get involved in that. We try to ignore it, you know. I mean, we all know anything about that and we're not even sure that that stuff is really true. We can just ignore it and maybe it'll go away. Colson tells in one of his books about the time that Lord Chamberlain went to talk to Hitler before the war really got going, but Hitler was definitely a threat to the world, and Chamberlain was then Prime Minister of Great Britain, he came back with this announcement, there will be peace in our time. He was ignorant of Hitler's devices. Uh, you know, and you can't just ignore something like this and expect it to go away. It's not going to go away. But the other extreme is, is to become so obsessed with the demonic world or satanic activity that you just become obsessed with that. I know of a, you know, I mean, even when your car breaks down, blame it, blame it on some demon. You know, I, I know people who do that. 
I've got a friend who attends a church in Fort Worth of preachers, got so involved in it in this kind of thing. He's just obsessed with it. One day, couldn't get his key in his door lock, and he knelt down and thought he saw a demon there in that door, keeping the key out. And one saintly little lady came to his church one day to talk to him about something, and he identified 21 demons in this saintly little old lady and said he saw one on her shoulder. Now that's getting a little, that's a little too much. And there are some people who have such an unhealthy curiosity about this world of darkness that's out there. And they want to see some and experience this for themselves. And so they get swept in as in, as in a tide. They get swept up in this stuff and get trapped in it, in this world of darkness. And somewhere, I believe, in the middle, there is a middle where you and I need to come and and understand the teachings of Jesus concerning the, the satanic activity and the demonic world. It's in the middle where we understand the full teaching of Christ that I want to find a place to kind of settle down. Now the text. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with a preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. There is a Baptist church in a little town. Every time this church announces a revival, there's another church in town that announces revival. And so they can put their advertisement in the paper that they're going to have something special go on down at the church. And the pastor says the other church starts intensifying their efforts, you know, to, to be in competition with them. And they'll run a lot of stuff in the paper to, 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 to tell about their activities. On a much wider scale than that, something like that happens in the world. Every time there is a spiritual awakening, there is another spiritual awakening occurs at the same time. And every time there is a movement of the Spirit of God upon a church or upon a people, there is a movement of the unholy Spirit of God intensified in competition to that. It would be interesting if you took a pencil sometime as you read through the Gospels just circle the number of times the word Satan or demonic or satanic activity occurs and you will observe that every time the ministry of Jesus was in 
intensified or increased or spread abroad, there began to be an intensification of the ministry of the other world. As a matter of fact, this passage of Scripture comes at the end of the greatest statement on Christianity you will find anywhere in Scripture. Ruth Paxson calls the book of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 the Grand Canyon of the Bible. In other words, you can go in the book of Ephesians and in the first three chapters find this great statement of Christianity. Everything you need to know about God, that is theology. Everything you need to know about Christ, that is Christology. Everything you need to know about the church, that's ecclesiology. Everything you need to know is found in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. The grand canyon of scripture. And it just seems that the apostle Paul is saying this. Now before I quit this letter, I want you to understand that there is another world. There is another side. There is another opponent. And I want you to know this that on the other side of all of this great teaching concerning Scripture, on the other side is an opponent and a world and an opposition. Now, there are three points to this sermon. I want you to write these down. Number one, I think that you and I need to become aware or to understand, to be informed of the supernatural world. Did you get that down? We need to be informed of the supernatural world. There is more to God's creation than meets the eye, literally. There is more to what God has created than what you can see. The Apostle Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers of the darkness of this world. There are two categories to creation that are defined in Colossians 1.16. Write that reference down. Listen to it. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Now what Paul is saying is this, that God Himself created an invisible world and that there is a world that is not seen with the human eye. There is an invisible creation that God created. And Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 reads like this, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all root and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age, in the one to come. Now, now I want you to watch this. The Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians, that when God exalted Christ in the resurrection and ascension, much of that statement of that exaltation was directed to the unseen world. As a matter of fact, Paul says that the grand purpose of our redemption was that God might have trophies. And you are those trophies if you've been redeemed. 
that God might have an inheritance that throughout the ages to come in the unseen spiritual world He might demonstrate through His trophies His power, His wisdom, and His grace. Now listen to what that means. It means that a part of what God's purpose was in redemption was that through the ages to come in the invisible spiritual world God might demonstrate His wisdom and power and grace through you and because of you and by you. There are two parts of His creation, the invisible world and the visible world. Now I need to say two things about the invisible world. Number one, the invisible creation is more real than the visible creation. Now I know that's not going to be hard, that's not going to be easy to swallow, but it's true. The invisible world is more real than the visible. You remember when Thomas was absent, when Jesus revealed Himself to His disciples after His resurrection? And the disciples went looking for Thomas, and they said, Thomas, Jesus is alive, and Jesus appeared to us. He said, I'll not believe that until I see it. And so the next night, Jesus appears to Thomas. And Thomas looks at Jesus, He doesn't even have to put his finger on the wounds. He just looks at Jesus and he cries. You know what he said? My Lord and my God. Now Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, you have believed because you've seen. But blessed is he who has not seen me and yet believes. Now I want to tell you what that means. It means that there is a realm of believing that is the result of seeing. And God takes that to another level and says, there is a level where a person sees because he believes. Now I can divide this congregation this morning into two categories. There are those of you who believe if you see. And then there are those of you that Jesus calls blessed, who see what others cannot see because you believe. So there are some who believe because they see, and then there are some who see because they believe. And the level that, that, that Jesus is talking about that exceeds them all is this seeing which is the result of believing. And I'm convinced And I want you to write this down because I believe it is a truth. That the key to the abundant life, the key to the abundant life is coming to the place where the invisible is more real to you than the visible. Let me ask you this. Who is more real to you? Jesus or the person sitting beside you? Who is more real? Which is more real? Your pain or His provision? Which is more real to you, your trouble or His ability to meet that trouble? For the key to the abundant life is when you come to a point where the invisible is more real than the visible. Now, Hebrews 11.3 reads like this. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. You know what that says? 
It says that everything that we see in this creation was made out of the invisible. The invisible is more real than the visible. Now, I've never seen a cowry. I hear there are calories, but I've never seen one. You ever seen a cowry? I, I, I made this statement this morning. I could tell the folks on the back row didn't understand what I was saying. It's calorie. I've never seen a calorie, but I can tell you there are calories. Looky right here. I mean, now, now what you see here is made out of what you don't see. This is made out, this visible thing right around my waistline here is made out of the invisible. Now, what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that this visible world was created from the invisible world. What a statement. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You mean we can see that which we can't see? Yes, we can. In the second book of Kings, chapter 6, the armies of, of the enemy are encamped around Elisha's house, and his servant is there. And his servant looks out the window and he sees all these armies encamped around Elisha. And he's frightened, of course. And Elisha prays, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he might see. And he opened his eyes. And he looked out the window the second time and he no longer saw the armies camped around Elisha. He saw chariots of fire around about Elisha. And I want you to know this morning that there is an invisible world and it's more real than the visible world. And if we measure life only by the visible, we will always be defeated, unhappy, and discouraged. All right, second point about the invisible world. The supernatural beings of the visible, invisible world are active in the visible world. Did you get that down? The supernatural beings in the invisible world are active in the visible one. Now, if the supernatural beings of this invisible creation are active in the world where I live, I want to know what they're doing. Don't you? Hebrews 1.13 says... But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now what he's saying is this, that in this invisible world there are ministering angels who are sent by God to minister to the saved. So if you're saved this morning, you have ministering angels who care for you. Now, if you don't believe that, take that and tear it out of the Bible. That's your prerogative, but it's right there in Scripture. In the book of Daniel, you'll find reference again and again to Michael, the archangel. But when you come to chapter 12 of Daniel, you find that, the, that Michael, the archangel, has a particular reference or relationship to the people of God. He is sent to guard over the destiny of the children of God. He is sent to guard over you. 
Now, I'm not going to get into what's happening in the Middle East. I've got my own opinions about that. But there will always be a remnant of the people of God, and He will always guard them. You'll find the ministering angels in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. For there, Peter in prison, one angel came, woke him up, and brought him out from the inner part of the prison in the presence of the guards. They never even knew it. You'll find him again in the 21st, 27th chapter of the book of Acts. For when Paul was on that ship that was about to go down, he stood up and said, Don't get too worried, folks, for an angel came to me last night and said he's going to spare us and save us. Psalm 34, 7, write it down. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Psalm 91, 11, and 12. Now watch this. Write it down, 91, 11, and 12. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. Where have you heard that before? That's what the devil quoted to Jesus. The devil quoting scripture to Jesus. And he told Jesus, Well, these angels will hold you in your hands so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. The devil knew more than we know. What the devil knew was that in this invisible world there are ministering angels who are sent to save and protect us. And history is replete with evidences of this. In Billy Graham's book, Angels, Angels, he tells about the time the Japanese took over China, came marching into China in the 40s. They were a group of little missionary, little missionary group were meeting in a house, was meeting in a house for prayer, and the Japanese were threatening them, and they came against them at the house. They couldn't do anything. They, could, they, 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 they had the whole army, but they couldn't do anything. Inside this house were these saints of God on their knees in prayer. The next morning, the Japanese army dispersed and left. Some people came to the missionaries and asked this question, Who were those guards on the top of that house last night protecting you? These missionaries said, We didn't have any guards. Yes, you did, they said. We saw them with our own eyes. In this spirit world... They are those who minister to the saints. All right? If there are ministering angels to the saved, there are also unholy spirits, evil angels. Now, I know I lost some of you right there. That's okay. I'll be back in just a minute. You can, you can do what you want to. I'll come back to you in a minute. I believe... It is my humble and accurate opinion, one I value very much, in the demonic world. And I believe that there are evil angels in the demonic world, in the invisible world, just as there are angels who minister to the saved in the spirit, invisible spirit world. Sometime we're studying at night the book of Daniel. I want you to read sometime the 10th chapter of the book of Daniel. And Daniel's praying and fasting, and his prayer's not answered for 21 days. Three weeks he prays and fasts. And finally God speaks to him. I want to read you what he says. It starts in verse 10 of chap chapter 10. Behold, a hand touched me, 
and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high, of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding, on understanding this and humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. I heard you the first day you prayed, he said. And I have come in response to your words. Why did he wait three weeks? Here's the answer. But the prince of Persia, of the kingdom of Persia, was withstanding me. It means he opposed me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, remember that word? Remember that person, that being? But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I'd been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I want you to know what I believe about this. I believe since Persia was this godless, evil empire, that in this spirit world there were princes assigned to various sections of that world. They were called princes. They were leaders of the spirit world of darkness. And that was the being that resisted the prayer of Daniel. And he resists your prayer and he resists mine. Now, I've got 17 minutes and I'm just now getting off a runway. I'll be out of here. Point two. If you're interested in this at all, you might ask for a manuscript of this later. Not only are we to be aware of the supernatural world, we are to be aware of the supernatural war that goes on. Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but he does say we wrestle. An interesting thing happened to me a couple of, a few months ago. We, we were over in England and we went in England out to a little village of a size of about three, 500 people to a cemetery. It's where Winston Churchill is buried. The interesting thing about that visit was not that I saw where Winston Churchill was buried, but walking around in that little cemetery next to this old church, I saw gravestones of people who died during the Revolutionary War. I saw a gravestone of a person who was buried in 1778. And while I was walking around looking at that, I, it, I, the thought occurred to me, I mentioned it to some people on the bus, I bet you that old guy that died in 1778 didn't even know there was a revolution. I mean, it took months, it took years to get news back of that. You remember when you were a kid reading about Rip Van Winkle? He went to sleep drinking that stuff under that tree. He went to sleep. England was in control. When he woke up, the colonies were free. I mean, he literally slept through a revolution. Some of us are doing the same thing. There's a war going on. We don't even know it. Let me tell you something about this war. It's not taking place in a physical realm, believe it or not. Paul says we wrestle, and that word means to, it's hand-to-hand hand, hand combat, and it is a treacherous and life-threatening struggle. He says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, and the word against is that same word that's found where it says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It means face-to-face. -face. It means that our struggle is an intimate struggle with a being. We're not just messing around with some philosophy or 
some weird idea some preacher propagates. We're in a flesh and blood intimate encounter, hand-to-hand combat, and it's a matter of life and death. I preached a, in, a, in a jail over at Roby, Texas when I was my first church. I went over there and preached on Monday night. And after my little sermonette, this old trustee, I mean, he's a hopeless alcoholic. He said, I've got a question. I'll, old Gray's going to ask me about something about revelation. <laughs> the revelation. My men will see how embarrassed I am. But when he asked the question, he asked one I could answer right away. This was the question. What does the Bible mean when it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood? My answer to that is the answer you know without even, you know, you don't have to be a Harvard graduate to know that the struggle, the war that goes on, the real war is a war in the spiritual realm. It's what Barnhouse calls the invisible war. And the problem is that the reason why Christians, the reason why we're losing the battle is because we're showing up at the wrong battlefield. This war is a, is a spiritual war, an invisible one. And it'll not be won by, you know, nice buildings and great programs and, and polished sermons. The battlefield is not in a physical realm, on a physical plane. The battlefield is in the the heavenlies, he said. It's in the place where a man gets with God. The battlefield. The victory is won or lost in the prayer room. Should be an amen or two there. The victory is won or lost in the prayer room. We haven't even shown up the right battlefield. And young people, listen to me. When you go to school tomorrow and you go unprepared, you go without the full armor of God, you have no prayer life, you have no walk with God, you have no spiritual life, you're going to be defeated. Listen to me, adults, out in the marketplace. You will come to church on Sunday and that's about it. You have no spiritual life, you have no prayer life, you have no walk with God, you have no armor that you take upon yourself, you're going to fall flat. We need to be aware of the warfare. Third, this is it. We need to know about the supernatural world, warfare, weapons. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Hey, hallelujah, they're spiritual. And they're mighty to the pulling down of the strongholds, Paul says. Now I believe, and I'll just touch these and we'll do it another time. I believe there are four weapons that the child of God has, possesses. One is his position in Christ. 1 John 4, 4, write it down. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now I think this is true, although I didn't have time to check it with Lewis Barker our physics guy. But I did check it with Jerry Polson, and I do trust him almost as much as I trust Lewis. I think it's true that, that we have exerted on our bodies, I'm, I was being facetious, now I'm serious. We have exerted on our bodies 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure exerted on your body. Now a square inch is about that much. Some of you have a lot more pressure on you because you got a lot more square inches. <laughs> but if you imagine a square inch, a square inch of your body, there's 14.7 pounds of pressure on that, on your body per square inch. 
You take the square inches of your body, some of you got lots of them, you take those square inches and you multiply it by 14.7 and you got thousands of pounds of pressure on your body. Now why aren't you crushed? Well, the reason why you are not crushed is because you have an equal amount of pressure on the inside pushing out. If you didn't, you'd be smashed like a bug and run over by an 18-wheeler. I mean, you'd just be flat. Now, watch this. If you and I didn't have within us one who is greater than he who is out there, we'd be smashed before we ever got started. He's greater in us than he that's in the world. Hallelujah. Not do you have an equal power in, you know, to the outside invisible evil world. You have a greater than he. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he set him in the heavenlies. And in the, in the Bible refers to the in Christ theology, which means that's fundamental to Paul's theology is the in Christ statement. He says that we are in Christ. Now if Christ is in the heavenlies, where are you in Christ? You're in the heavenlies. Which means that you're in a position in Him that the evil cannot touch. I love it. Positionally. Positionally. You are in a place, position that cannot be touched by the evil. Oh, that's one sermon in itself. All right, second weapon. I'm just going to mention it. We're out of here. The second weapon is the blood of Jesus. Now, Revelation 12, 11 says, And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 12, 11. It means two things. It means that because of the blood of Jesus, we have access to God. We have access to God. You can flee to God this morning. I'm so burdened as you about our friends who are in this devastating world conflict. Where do they flee? Well, about the best place is some bunker somewhere. In this world, there is no place to hide from the evil one. But there is a place of safety and security. It's in it's by His side. It's in His presence. It's near to the heart of God. By His blood, we have access to the throne. It means by His blood, we're cleansed of every sin of which Satan can accuse us. We have the weapon of His blood. Third, we have the Word of God. And so in the fourth chapter of Matthew, armed with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul, I mean, Jesus defeated every attempt of Satan. Fourth, We have the name of Jesus. I want to finish with this. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians that God gave Jesus a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue should confess, both in heaven and earth and beneath the earth, that Jesus is Lord. Do you hear that? What that says is that God has given a name to Jesus that is honored in all three worlds and that in the world above, the world where you and I move about, and in the world beneath, the name of Jesus is honored and every knee 
bows and every tongue confesses that name as Lord. You know what that means? It means that if you know Jesus by name, you have a cosmic credit card. Now I'm going to say that without, I hope I'm not sounding crude or irreligious. By that I mean that with the name of Jesus, you have that which is honored in all three worlds. You have your way about it. So the poet put it like this. When I say, Master, my sorrows disappear. When I say, Father, He drives away my fear. When I say, Savior, my blinded eyes can see. When I say, Jesus, He speaks peace to me. The weapon of His name. I want you to know His name this morning. I want you to know Him by name. I'm going to ask you now to give me this moment of invitation to ask of you, do you know Jesus? Does He live in your heart? Does He abide in you? Have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? I'm not asking you, are you a member of a church? Are you religious? Do you go through motions of religion? I'm asking you, have you ever come to know Jesus personally? Is He more real than the person near you? You can know Jesus this morning and He comes into your heart and greater is He in you than in the world and you have within you the power to overcome. Come today and receive Jesus as your Savior. Come this morning and recommit your life to Jesus Christ. Understand that this is a, this is a serious business to be a Christian. And this war is a terrible thing. I'm talking about this invisible war. I want you to come this morning and join the church if God leads you to. Some came in the early service. After we've had prayer, we invite you to come. Father, we thank you for the word of your word and its truth. Now may our application of it mean that we're willing to surrender our life to its demand and its call to us. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now in the spirit of prayer, I want you to come this morning as we stand and saying, come.